Open up to 1 Corinthians 10, continuing our series as we march through 1 Corinthians. And in just a moment, I'll start reading in verse 14, actually verse 13. But as you flip there, a few things to think about. What would you do if you were living in India and your Hindu neighbors that you've been building a good friendship with, they invite you over for a gathering at their house to dedicate their home and you find out uh, in advance of going that the food you're going to eat uh, would have been dedicated to an idol earlier that day. Should you go? What would you do if you're living in a Muslim-majority country? And Ramadan is coming up. In fact, Ramadan begins tomorrow. And as part of that, for a month, as you're likely aware, uh, during the hours when the sun's up, they, they don't eat. But then at the end of the day when the sun goes down there's a big celebratory meal and it's common to invite um, non-Muslim friends and neighbors to to come and enjoy a a big meal that's not part of the worship celebration but is a to close to that fasting for the day you love your neighbors you want to build friendships with them you're hoping to share Christ with them should should you go those scenarios may seem somewhat removed for you although I bet there are some parallels that you might bump up against in our, even in our own community. But they're common for believers around the world. There's 1.2 billion Hindus in the world. There's 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. And sprinkled in all these communities are followers of Christ. And followers of Christ who, who want to love their neighbors. They want to share Christ with their neighbors. And they're bumping up against questions like this of, should I go, should I not? What's compromising, what's not? It's exactly what is being dealt with in this passage. Remember, it's an issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols that spans from chapter 8 to chapter 10. So we're getting near the tail end of that. He's come to it from a few different perspectives of when is it okay, when is it not. We're going to revisit it here then. And the particular focus here is on the danger of idolatry. Is going to make the point that idols aren't real. There's only one true, real, and living God. But idolatry is a very real danger. And we're going to be warned against it here as part of this discussion that spans these three chapters. So with that in mind, let me go ahead and read now. We're really going to start studying in verse 14, but I'll start reading in verse 13 for a little bit of context. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord's jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? The 
main command in this passage. In fact, the one that then shapes the rest of the verses is verse 14, where it just simply says, flee idolatry. Don't toy around with it. Don't see how close you can get to the line. Flee. Flee idolatry. And then from there, the other points are going to be explaining why, as believers, as followers of Christ, we must flee idolatry. But what is idolatry? We might think of it as just, you know, we, think, we picture a little statue, people bowing down to it, maybe offering things before it. And that's certainly part of idolatry. Uh, idolatry is simply worshiping anything other than the true God in the true way. Worshiping anything other than the true God in the true way. It was prohibited at least as early as Exodus 20, if not before that, where after the Lord had, had brought the people supernaturally out of Egypt, he'd rescued them, he'd declared himself to them as the great I am, the God who just exists, the God who is. And then he told them, you shall have no other gods before me. doesn't mean they can have other gods after him, like he just needs to be first place. No, that just means no, no gods. Be, besides, besides the one true and living God, no other gods to worship. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. And that may seem to us, especially if, kind of, you know, in a pluralistic culture and you think, why is God being so exclusive there? Well, on one hand, it just corresponds with reality. If he is the one true and living God, it would be worshiping a lie to worship anything else. He's objectively worthy of our worship. Uh, but it's also true that what we worship, we become like. What we worship, we become like. Or as somebody said, what we revere, we resemble. So if people set their heart, their worship, their affection on something other than the true God, they will become conformed to that thing. And nothing could be greater than the true and living God. In Romans chapter 1, it seems to make that link between idolatry and then sin that comes out in people's lives. It's a little bit longer passage, so I won't have it up here on the screen, but I encourage you to turn there. We're in 1 Corinthians. Romans is just one book to the left. Or if you're on your phones, you know, scroll down, hit the arrow, go over, you know, whatever it might be. One book to the left. Romans chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 20. 25. It's a longer section. If we had time, we'd work through all of Romans 1. But I want to at least see one part here. And what I want you to watch for is language about idolatry and then how it ends up affecting a person's life. Starting in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, which would be part of worshiping him, honoring him, giving thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Rather than going with what he said, they're speculating and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, for an idol in the form of corruptible man 
and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It's this great exchange, the glory of God, the true God, for something else, something man-made, whether physically man-made that we see or just internally in our own hearts and minds. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. And as the chapter goes on, he describes that as there's an exchange of worship that ends up playing out in people's lives and rebellion against the one true God. We become, we become like what we worship. We resemble what we revere. And, and so it's an issue of what does God deserve and also what is very best for us as his creatures. Idolatry can be much more subtle, though, than just a statue that's set up in a corner that people bow down to. Brad Bigney says it this way. He says, an idol is anything or anyone, very broad, that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So anything or anyone that captures, something about idolatry that it captures our attention, our affection, more than God. Obviously, there's other things we're going to be interested in, right? You're going to begin a new relationship with somebody, and they're going to capture your attention in some way. But the problem is, does that become more than God? Does your life revolve around this person, this thing, this job, this bank account, whatever it is, that's when it can border on idolatry as the Bible uses this language. I think that's supported in a few passages. In Job chapter 31, Job's talking about the danger of idolatry and he's saying here that he's, he hasn't given in to this, but I want you to notice the way he describes this. He says, if I have put my confidence in gold and called gold, find gold my trust. That's, that's the language of idolatry, putting your confidence in something, making it your trust. In this case, find gold. He says, if I had done that, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, that's idolatry. You're boasting and glorying and finding your identity in this, in this case, wealth. If I have looked at the sun, what it shone, or the moon going in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed. This is something that doesn't have to be visual and seen, but in the heart. And my hand through a kiss from my mouth, that's physically uh, expression of worship, that too would have been an iniquity, meaning a sin, calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. He says that's what idolatry does. Whether it's this statue that you're saying is God, or it's wealth that is functioning as that. It's no wonder then that in Colossians, in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 5, it equates greed with idolatry. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, this hunger for more, 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 which amounts to idolatry. So if you hear idolatry and you think, yeah, those people overseas, they really got to worry about that, like your heart can be an idol factory very much. Just perhaps even more subtly. So it's not just something for others somewhere else, but it's for us to watch for. Martin Luther explains this very well. He says, what is it to have a God? Or what is one's God? Answer, to whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, this is what is meant by 
God. Many a person imagines that he has God and everything he needs, provided he has money and property. The evidence for this appears when people are arrogant, secure, and proud because of such possessions, but desperate when they lack them or lose them. I repeat, to have a God means to have something on which one's heart depends entirely. It's the subtle nature of idolatry. So it's no wonder then, going back to 1 Corinthians 10, that says flee. Flee idolatry. Our heart, our affection is to be on the Lord alone. And he's going to give several reasons for, for why we must flee idolatry. And the first is this. Idolatry violates what we share in communion. As we partake of communion, in our case we do it monthly, as we take of this, there's something that is communicated there that idolatry violates that. It contradicts that. So what is it? Look again at verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Sharing is a key word here. He says here, sharing in the body, sharing in the blood, sharing in the cup. In the next verse, it talks about the nation of Israel sharing in the altar. A little bit further down, it talks about, verse 20, sharing with demons. It's this term. It means to, to it's, it's the word koinonia, if you've heard that, that Greek term. It means to fellowship, to have in common. It says when we partake of this meal, we call it the Lord's Supper, we call it the Eucharist, we call it communion. It's, it's, this, it's this sacred thing the Lord has given us. What are we doing there? You can describe it this way. Communion is taking of the Lord's, Lord's uh, bread and, and the cup. It's a powerful teaching moment that symbolizes his substitutionary death for us and a response of faith. It's a, it's a powerful teaching moment. It's not some magic act, but it's this moment where together we do this, that it, it declares something, it pictures something. It's a teachable moment. Jesus' death for you and for me. And, and your response of faith to that. There's a responsive element of it. We commune with Christ. There, there is a vertical aspect of this, which, which is how it ties in with idolatry. There's a vertical aspect here where we are communing with Christ, but notice there's a horizontal aspect of it as well. Look again at verse 17, and that's what it seems to focus on here. There is one bread, and we who are many, many, diverse, different ages, different giftedness, different life experiences, different background, we who are many are one. For we all partake of one bread. As we take of it together, it pictures something. Not just your individual union with Christ, although it does, but all of us who are united to Christ in some way being united with one another. That's why historically churches have, have taken communion by, by sharing a, a common cup and breaking off bread. Now, one year post-COVID, the idea of sharing a common cup with all these people maybe makes you a little bit nervous, right? Um, but it was a powerful symbol of what we have in common. We try to duplicate that in some way. Why, yes, we all like have individual cups, 
But you notice we all partake together when we do it. And that's intentional. You know, rather than having people kind of on their own come up, take communion when they're ready, but everybody gets the elements, and then we partake at the same time because we're trying to picture this unity with one another that we all have because we're all united to Christ. There's a, a sharing that takes place as we partake of this together. Remember, the point here is about idolatry. It says flee idolatry. Why? Because when you take the Lord's Supper, you're picturing your union with Christ. Why would you want to dabble in anything that's contrary to that? It points next in verse 18 to the nation of Israel and their sacrifices. It says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, some of the sacrifices that were brought um, were not consumed by people. Others were eaten by the priests uh, as they oversaw it. But there were others that, that all of the people together ate. Deuteronomy 14 Verses 22 to 26 describes this. It says, You shall surely tithe, that means give a tenth, of all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat, you all together, in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place where he chooses to establish his name. That's looking ahead to the temple. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. In this act, as the people together were partaking, they were declaring something about their community as followers of God. They were remembering God's sacrifice, the sacrificial system that he had given them, pointing ahead to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. They were declaring something as they shared in it together. So the argument here is that when we take communion, there's not a sacrifice that's done, but we're picturing our sharing with Christ. The Old Testament Israelites did this in a slightly different picture. And then he brings up one more point about idolatry. And it's one that, on first glance, you might kind of recoil against because it's a little bit contrary to, to perhaps um, the dominant ideas in our, in our culture. But I want you to stick with me. The next point, I think in verses 19 to 21, and the warning about idolatry is that idolatry is subtly demonic. And that term shows up over and over again. I want you to, to look again at verses 19 to, to 21 because I want you to see this isn't something I'm trying to put into the text but just reflecting what's there. He says, what do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. So there's no real God behind these idols or these sacrifices. But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. At least four times in there he makes this point. It's repeated really from Deuteronomy, a warning given back in Deuteronomy to the people. It says, they sacrificed to demons who were not God. To gods whom they have not known. New gods who have come lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So, false religious system, there may not be a true God behind it, but it says there's, there are spiritual forces there. There's demonic forces. And we ought not to, to toy with that or treat it lightly. I, I say it's a subtle thing because here's what I mean. There's much in cultures around the world that are just beautiful expressions of 
people made in the image of God. And so there'd be architecture and food and music and clothing and things that are diverse and, and great. But intermixed with that can, can be this false religious system with demonic perspective that is keeping people in darkness. And, and so we must learn to be able to celebrate and enjoy things that are just functions of diversity and, and separate out that which is idolatry. And it's not always easy to do. But it's part of recognizing the spiritual seriousness with which we live. In Colossians chapter 1, as it describes how people come to Christ, I want you to notice what they're brought out of. That if you're in Christ, it says, this is true of you. It says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a change of kingdoms from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of of Christ when a person comes to Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That change of kingdoms is brought out because your sins are forgiven. You trust in Christ. He pays for your sins. Those are washed away. You're new in Christ, but you're brought out of something. And so all this passage in 1 Corinthians is reflecting of that reality that apart from Christ, there's this domain of darkness. And it infuses even these false religious systems so therefore, syncretism, the, the blending of Christianity with some other religious belief, is not compatible. He says you can't drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. Syncretism is just not an option. Um, years ago, when I was a college student, I, I became interested in serving overseas in Russia. And the reason was, I was at a retreat, and there was a, a video that was shown from some people that were already serving in this far eastern part of Russia. And they're trying to encourage other students to take a year off of school and to, and to come and minister to these people. And the people group were known as the Buryats. And the Buryats are near Lake Baikal, far eastern Russia and Siberia. And they're much more in common with like the people of Mongolia or the northern part of China. They're largely Buddhist, um, more Asian seeming than it would be like near Moscow. And, and as they were in this video interviewing a young man that they had been trying to share Christ with, you could see the, the confusion that they were dealing with that made it hard for people to separate out the exclusivity of Christ. Because what this young man said is, he said, I'm so glad that people came and told me about Jesus. Uh, before this, I followed Buddha, but now I follow Buddha and Jesus. And he was so excited in that. And, and my heart broke. Because... Because there's a blending there if he's not seeing the exclusivity of Christ. Of what it means to follow Christ and Christ alone. I think that danger is real in our society also. But for different reasons. It was true for him because in, in Buddhism it's, it, there's kind of a broadness to accepting these different views and just kind of adding it in. But in our culture it's an individualism that does that. It's like what do you, what do you believe? And what do you... What do you like about this group and this group and this group and kind of combining it all together rather than I need to follow Christ alone? So this passage warns about that. And then it gives us one final warning in verse 22. It says that idolatry provokes the Lord's jealousy. Look again at verse 22. Wifely idolatry why separate this out in exclusive worship of Christ alone? Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? 
Back to Exodus again, as the Lord warns about idolatry, he says this as well. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Natural question that comes up from this, though, is why is jealousy okay for God but not for us? Why is it okay, and in fact, if it's an attribute of God, it's not just okay, it's good for him to be jealous in this way. But many a parent have had to say to their middle schooler, hey, don't be jealous, you know. Why is the one wrong and the other right? For God, his jealousy is a function of his, of his holiness, of his goodness. It's not a, an evil suspicion, wanting what somebody else has for, for yourself just because you want it. It flows out of his character of wanting what is very best for us and what is rightfully his. It would be more comparable to a, to a husband's jealousy if he finds out that his wife commits adultery or vice versa, where there is an exclusive union to marriage. And so when that's violated, there is a sense of jealousy about that. Now, a husband could be wrongly jealous if he is suspicious of his wife for no good reason and controlling of her when he doesn't have good information on this. But the Lord is never like that. His knowledge is complete and exhaustive, and so his jealousy is always a holy jealousy. So what this tells us is that if we're considering something of idolatry, it's not just a horizontal question, but a vertical question. Here's what I mean. Imagine somebody invites you to a special type of kind of religious gathering. There's going to be food. There's going to be celebration. Seems like there might be some aspect of worship to it, and you're trying to decide, should I go or should I not? Typically, we think of that in terms of a horizontal question. Like, will I hurt their feelings if I say no? Will it hinder the relationship? You know, I, I'm trying to build a relationship here. Is it going to cut that off? And those are legitimate questions to ask. But this tells us we need to ask a vertical question. Like, will this provoke the Lord to jealousy? Is this an aspect of idolatry that I need to say no to this, even though I care about this person? Well, I want to I get specific as we wrap up here. I'm going to give you four questions to ask in different scenarios. And I'm going to give you some scenarios that, again, our believers overseas have experienced that may overlap, though, with things that you experience. And so the first question is, does participation in this activity unavoidably involve worship? Maybe there's food. Maybe there's talking and celebration and music. But is there worship linked in in an unavoidable way? We would likely need to decline. That's not always the case, though. Sometimes these other aspects of celebration seem separate from that, or you can participate in one without the other, or, or it's not blatant and obvious that the worship is involved. So in, in preparation for this message, I talked to a few different people. Uh, one of the ones I talked to was Chuck Mathias. Chuck and Connie Mathias are missionaries that served for about a decade overseas in India and now serve stateside. How many of you know Chuck and Connie? Okay, yeah, quite, quite a few hands here. They've visited many times. Uh, but they you said for, for at least a decade were, were in India. And I asked him, I said, did you guys encounter this a lot? And he said it was constant. It was constant. Um, neighbors would, would have a, uh, a celebration to celebrate maybe a new home. And they would invite everybody in the neighborhood, whether they're Hindu or not, invite them into the home for a big meal. They loved hospitality. And they loved kind of an excuse to celebrate. And, and so they would invite them. And these are people they're building relationships with. They're hoping to share Christ with. They're friends. And 
So they would want to go, and they often would, but if there was food that was offered to them that they were specifically told, this food, by the way, was, was sacrificed to an idol that we're so grateful for, you know, this and we want to offer it to you. He said when it was explicit like that and clear, they would decline. They would graciously decline that. And I think that's in line with what we see a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 10. We left off in verse 22. Look ahead to verse 27. I think it's living out just what we see here. It says, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go... Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. They invite you. They put out stuff. They don't tell you that it's offered to an idol. You wonder, but they don't say that. You can eat it because an idol's nothing. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Do not mean your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Saying if it's clear that they're putting it out. Yes, this was offered to an idol and to partake. It's like you're partaking in this worship. He says, no, you need to decline. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's just a meal. And we can just go. Here's another practical scenario I started with earlier. Um, Ramadan starts tomorrow. Um, and for Muslim communities, that's a month where during the daytime hours, they, they don't eat, they fast. But then when the sun goes down, there's a big meal. And it's common to invite friends, neighbors, non-Muslims to come to this meal. And a desire to show hospitality. And many believers uh, that serve in contexts like that describe this period of Ramadan as kind of an intense period of spiritual interest for their Muslim neighbors. Where there's a desire to talk about God. And, and there's, there's often open doors there that there aren't other times of the year. Do, do you go? Well, often the meal is just a meal. It's part of this celebration for them, but the meal is just a meal, and it's an opportunity to engage with them. And so I think in good conscience you could say yes. It, if it overlaps with worship, that's when it's different, right? So that's where there's some discernment. We can ask some other questions. Will it violate my conscience or lead another believer to violate theirs? This was what we saw back in chapter 8. Uh, flip, flip there briefly. We covered this many weeks ago. We'll flip to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. It says, food is just food. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block, become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, meaning you know this Idols nothing, this is just food. Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? If you recall, it's a scenario where some people say, oh, my conscience is fine, I know this idol's nothing, it's just meat, it's been sacrificed to an idol, but I know that's not real, I can eat. But, but there's other believers who, whose consciences are really sensitive towards that. And so the issue is not just what are you able to do, but does it affect their conscience? Does it violate your conscience? So it's another layer of kind of the question we have to ask. Third, will it confuse my host about my spiritual allegiance? Will participating in this make my host think that, that perhaps there's no conflict between the worship of Christ and the worship of these other things? That they can be joined together? Will it cause confusion there? Another person I talked to this week uh, on this was uh, 
Prabha from our body. Prabha uh, grew up in India, although has lived here for, for a number of years. Uh, her family was a believing family that she grew up in. And, and I asked her how they approached this. And she said, yes, it was, it was constant. We were invited often to community-wide celebrations where there would be food. But, but bowing down to these idols was a literal part of it. And, and even you know, putting little decorations on your forehead and, and things. And so my family, just by conviction, we just, we just always declined because it was so tied up in worship. And, and what she said, and Chuck said the same thing when I asked him, is that these non-Christian groups, they know that about Christians, that they aren't to worship other idols. And so if they go along with it, it tells them something about the seriousness of this Christian. And, and Prabhu was saying, but if we say no, even though that's hard, it often opens up other doors later for the gospel. So will it confuse my host about my spiritual allegiance? And then fourth, can I affirm the relationship but avoid the spiritual entanglement? Can I affirm this relationship? Often that's the goal of why I want to go. Sometimes it's because, man, the food just sounds really good, you know, or something like that. But often it's, man, I care about this person and I, and I don't want them to feel that I don't. And, and yet, I don't want to give any confusion about my loyalty to Christ or participate in something that seems idolatrous, are there other ways? Are there ways perhaps not to go to this celebration but to bring another gift? Uh, perhaps to look for an opportunity to have them over uh, into your home. Uh, perhaps it's a clarifying conversation ahead of time so there's no confusion of loyalties where you say, yes, I'm going to come because I love you and I care about you. If there's an aspect of worship of this. I'll have to kind of bow out at that part, but I want to be there to support you. That type of clarification can help avoid the entanglement with idolatry. So wrap up here. I know there's maybe some hanging questions for different scenarios. One thing to keep in mind is that running through chapter 8 to 10 is a lot of conscience-type questions. And recognition that believers might come to some different conclusions in some areas. And so we need to allow for, for believers to come to some different conclusions in some things. While also holding firmly to something like verse 14 where it says, flee idolatry. So there's some things that are just out of bounds. And there's others that there's room for difference of, caution, of, of conscience. And it takes wisdom and grace and generosity as we're interacting with other believers on these very topics. If you have specifics, though, if there's other scenarios or like, ah, my family's inviting me to this thing, do you think I should go or not? Man, I would love to interact with you on some of those details also. So let's pray.